It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion about child sexual exploitation, child sexual abuse materials, and the murder of two children. After it became increasingly clear that there was a catfish element to the Delphi murders, we decided to periodically feature interviews with professionals who specialized in that field, so that we can all become better educated about this troubling subject. This week, we talked with Tony Godwin and Brandon Poor. Both men are Texas-based police officers who specialize in Internet Crimes Against Children, or ICAC. They work tough cases involving pedophiles, and, as you will hear, they speak with the knowledge and insight that only comes through direct experience. They are also podcasters. They host Catfish Cops, a program where they explore the topic of child exploitation with depth, 
insight, and compassion. We highly recommend it. And we appreciate them taking time away from their busy schedules to talk with us. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We're the Murder Sheet. And this is A Conversation with the Catfish Cops. We'd love to start by hearing a bit about your experience. Uh, Brandon, I know you used to be an opera singer of all things. Yeah, that's, I try not to put that out there if I can help it, but it seems to be the first thing. I'm just kidding. No, no, no. It's everyone knows. Everyone knows. Uh, yeah, I started off singing opera professionally and did my uh, graduate degree and work in uh, New York and sang for a couple years. And then um, after I got married, I, decided that I needed to find something that kept me home more and much to my wife's su- surprise I mean she calls it a bait and switch I I became a cop so now my cousin calls me copra so <laughs> that's greatness and let me tell you that dude can sing like like nobody's business I've I've seen him do uh, what was the baseball game we went to you did the national anthem and um uh, yeah, uh, the the Rangers game. Yeah, yeah, we uh, whatever the seventh inning, Amazing Grace, America. God bless America. Yeah, I thought it was Amazing Grace, but uh, yeah, it was. Man, this dude can sing. That's nice. Thank you. What's uh, your background, Tony? Um, well, I was in the military for five years, but I was a cop in the military. Um, I worked my way up into investigations, and then when I got out of the military after five years, I was pursuing a law enforcement and I landed where I am in North Texas. And that's where I've been for now 30 years in April. So that's it, <laughs> you know, grew up a military brat. My, my dad was military. My mom was military. My brother was military. So we, I grew up all over the place, traveling and stuff, living in different places, typical military brat moving every three years or so. I'm curious, what made the two of you decide to spend your professional careers working on the issue of child sexual abuse? Okay, I'll just be ugly honest with you. I was a detective um, and I was working child related crimes. It wasn't, uh, it was basically where I was assigned. You know, I didn't choose to do that, um, but I was put there. And so 
you know, I just come from the mindset of wherever I'm at, whatever that is. In my agency, we get to specialize and that's kind of a specialized unit. And so I just decided I'm gonna do the best that I can do. And then once I started working those cases and I thought, man, what a better group of people to be helping, which are kids being victimized. And what a better group of people to put in prison that are victimizing kids. And so I just, you know, began to enjoy it. To move where I'm at now in ICAC, uh, specifically, I was going by the copier one day and I saw the guy that was doing the job before me. And he was in a Bermuda shirt and some shorts and flip flops and had a beard. And I thought he was on vacation. And he's like making copies. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm getting a case ready. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, you come to work dressed like that? And he's like, yeah, nobody cares. You know, this is what I'm doing. And so I'm like, I want to do that. <laughs> and so he's like, be careful what you ask for. And uh, yeah, lo and behold, a couple of years later, that opportunity came open. And that's where I've been for the last almost 17 years. So yeah. Because of how you dress. Because, yeah, because I get to have a little, little fuzz. <laughs> And nobody really cares what I wear, you know. They give me the benefit of the doubt. How about you, Brandon? Mine is <laughs> vastly different um, because we didn't have ICAC here where I'm where I work, and so and we we don't mention our agency specifically, but both of our agencies are very similarly situated in size, and we're kind of the heart of the metroplex. So I started in juvenile investigations in 2012, 2013, and then I joined our I actually put in for the position of detective in our child crimes unit um, in 2014 and, and got that spot. So the first couple of years of being in child crimes is, is quite literally, you know, just feet to the fire. You're investigating all of the cases that involve child sexual abuse, child physical abuse, child death and homicide. We had three big you know, child homicides within six months of each other. And so I spent the first couple of years, which is why Tony and I have this, we really believe that coming from the foundation of being victim focused um, and looking at these cases as just a, a larger outpouring of the dynamic of sexual abuse as a whole um, is really a, a more holistic way to approach these crimes. Um, some people look at online child sexual abuse as just its own little thing and and they're quite literally overlapping you know i i kind of attribute it to sort of like the venn diagram they're the overlapping circles of child sexual abuse as a larger picture so back in 2016 we didn't have anyone doing internet crimes against children at my agency and so i went to someone and said we need to start working this there was a lot of work piling up and um and available to do and so they said uh, would you be willing to do it and that's how i'm here today eight and a half years later. Um, given, you know, over the course of both of your experiences, um, you know, how how have um, these kinds of crimes or trends among perpetrators or what you're sort of seeing, how these um, child sexual exploitation crimes on the internet, like have those changed since you started? Um, or are you kind of just continuing to see, you know, the kind of the same thing over and over, I guess? I, I think the behavior is the same because there's predators online looking for prey, young kids, the method of how they are able to communicate has gotten far worse uh, over the course of my time 
and probably even over the course of Brandon's time, you know, first coming into this, it was, uh, you know, not that it was harder because they're all out there, no matter where you go, it was just different than it is now. Today with technology, you know, every kid on the planet has a phone. And so it makes it much easier. Yeah, it, it does feel like it's not necessarily the problem has evolved as far as, you know, the human aspect uh, of the behavior and the and the the basically the crime itself is very much the same as it's been for, you know, all of humankind, all of human existence as far as. And we use that word predator very specifically because quite literally we see them preying on the most vulnerable, the most um, the most manipulative, manipulative and easy to approach and, and just sort of use for their own purposes. So we see what's really changed is the evolution has been in technology and the like we've seen even just in eight and a half years i know tony started it was it was online chat rooms and then it kind of went to you know from message boards to online chat rooms and then you know from the evolution through craigslist and Backpage being taken down to then apps being introduced and we just see this huge shift in the way the applications are being used you know every every new app that comes out kids are jumping on and so you know what used to be in 2013 and 14 very popular for a kid to use app wise now those are the same apps that the kids now are saying you know that's for old people we don't get on those you know and i mean facebook is the quintessential example right and so the the way that it's happening is is still the same but the the methods and the and the tactics being used have changed considerably and and how would you both characterize the scope of the issue of child sexual exploitation on the internet like i from from covering topics along these lines we get the sense as as lay people that it's bigger than anyone would want to imagine and i guess is that a fair characterization or how would you describe it yeah that's a very very accurate uh way to put it um i I comment sometimes we do a lot of teaching you know with different groups um on almost a monthly basis um and when i'm talking to people i'm trying to explain to put it into context and in one realm of what we do which involves the the sharing downloading and uploading of child sex abuse material, CSAM. Um, Like I try to impress upon people without the freak out mode of, we literally could do this three to five times a week, every week for a decade and never run out of people to go after because it's such a prolific offense. And people, I don't know that they grasp that. I don't know that they grasp it, um, but that's the reality. Yeah, it's very, it, it's, it's sort of, I mean, I, I hate to see it, but it feels almost like we, we come into teach parent groups and, you know, their faces, <laughs> they yeah. look, they look, um, horribly just, uh, I mean, just terrified at the end of it because, you know, we don't sugarcoat. We, we do believe that educating the public is the best way to sort of attempt to stop this problem. Um, but it's it's far more prolific than you probably believe and that the normal person believes so much so that what we say is like 
you know someone, uh, and the same thing we've said for years about you know someone, even if they would never say this, that is a victim of child sexual abuse, you know someone who has this problem, who has either looked at child sexual abuse material, who has communicated with a person under under the age of 18 online, you know people in your circle um, that just haven't been caught or told you about that because it's so prolific. I'm here, you say the problem is so massive and that you could work so hard and barely make a dent. How do you prioritize who to go after? Um, that's a good question. And the, I guess the simplest answer, not that there is a simple answer, but the simplest that we can offer you would be someone who has immediate access or availability to a child. Those take precedence over everything. And one of the things that we strive to tell people, to educate people on is, you know, while we are doing things in undercover capacities all the time, all of that is based on real cases, real things that have happened to real children. Um, and, you know, that's where we realized, okay, this is an arena we need to be in so that the chances of them meeting us versus a child is better, but the priority is access and availability to a real kid. And we have different approaches. Tony and I have different things that we spend time doing. So, you know, the proactive undercover work is one facet of what we do. Um, I mean, going and taking down uh, people who are are downloading and and you know sharing CSAM is another facet of what we do. Um, I think. As Tony said, our biggest priority is looking for those people who, as far as online, those people who are offending on kids um, as a, in a hands-on offense and then sharing that material. Um, those are our biggest priority, in, no matter what we're doing, as far as the undercover proactive or looking for those people who are what we would call a producer of that material. Um, so it's very similar as I think the public's very aware, you know, that kind of this concept in the drug world you know they're you know the drug the drug concept of not looking for the low-level user when you're looking for the person who may be making it it's i think it's similar um we're not in the drug world obviously so i don't i don't speak to that but i certainly say that that's our priority is to look for those people who are abusing kids making children available for sexual abuse and then sharing that material online and one other component, which we didn't mention, um, which definitely bears mentioning, is what are called cyber tips. The National Center for Missing Exploited Children is sort of the nationwide clearinghouse for anything that happens online with internet service providers and young people. And so when those tips come in, and they come in a lot, uh, the numbers are staggering about how many are coming in on an annual basis. Uh, and those can range from anywhere from inappropriate communications or uploading or downloading material. Um, you know, they run the gamut, but that's where a good portion of law enforcement around the country are, that's their bread and butter because they're such a high volume of those. And so those take a priority too sometimes. Well, we look at the way kids are interacting with these predators online. I mean, we're those guys that ask kids when we teach at a school, like, hey, what are you, what apps are you using? What are the ways you're interacting with other people online? 
because those sort of insights give us a good way for for us to proactively look for ways that we can step into the middle of you know step into the gap so to speak between the predator and and those kids and and sort of be the person that catches them before they before they get to them a weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle but it doesn't have to be for so many of us lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first but it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's roco slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Um, we, we've noticed for both of you, you have experience with the sort of the technical aspect of actually extracting evidence from devices, phones, technology. And that's something that I don't think we could begin to understand because we're both pretty technologically illiterate. But I was wondering if you could speak a bit to that process and what sort of unique challenges arise when you're when you're sort of dealing with technology and getting the information and the evidence you need off of technology. I'll go first because... Uh... Brandon is phenomenal in this category. Like I'm telling you, he's he's in the top two people I've ever encountered that have the ability to do what he's doing, even though he's going to deny that greatly. Um, it's not, for me, I fell into it. I didn't seek it out to go and learn it. I am very grateful that I have um, a low-level knowledge, and that's as far as I'm going to go with it is low-level, um, on what to do and how to do what needs to be done. Um, but it, it came as a necessity for me. And so 
it doesn't come easy. It's uh, it's very much a perishable skill if you're not doing it. Um, and so that's why I have to rely on folks like Brandon who it just comes natural like and he's great at it. He's excellent at it. And when he doesn't find some way to get what he wants, he figures out how to go find it and then figures it out. And then he tells a guy like me. So I'm maybe like a level and a half above you guys. <laughs> but uh, I am grateful to have the knowledge, though I will say in my entire law enforcement career, it was absolutely the hardest course I've ever taken in my life, ever. That's that's humility on his, but that is absolutely. I'm telling humility. you the truth. <laughs> no, and I will say, I think Tony and I work well and have worked well. Like, I mean, let's put it out there. Tony was my instructor on many of the things in this world of of working this kind of this crime type. Um, but much like I'd say most people's stories, like doing the digital side of, of the work, the forensic side of the work is really out of necessity. I mean, you think about anything we deal with, have, you know, I mean, we are internet crimes against children detectives. We work online child exploitation. So like it's always going to have a, a digital component, um, excuse me, <clears throat> a digital component. We're always going to have computers, cell phones, cloud, internet applications, you know, external drives, all of that's a very big part of it. And so for me, it was very much the case of I'm going and I'm, you know, I'm seeing all of these devices and, and electronics used in this crime and not being able to look at that stuff myself. We would typically have to send off to a forensics lab. And what I, I think my position was when I first started doing the forensics myself, I felt like I know the case, the ins and outs of the case really well. I've been the one that's investigated it. I have talked to the offender. I have done interviews of witnesses. So I know the ins and outs of the case really well. But then I send it off to a digital forensic examiner who's very competent and quite a good examiner, but they don't know all of those ins and outs. They know the ins and outs of the forensic side of things. And so I felt like unless I was there to watch over their shoulder while they were doing something and tell them like, Hey, that's really crucial. Even though they didn't know that because it's not something you would think about maybe as being a piece of evidence, unless you sat in an interview, um, or something like that. I felt like, okay, that's what needs to happen. I need to be able to learn that side of it so that I can, I can work these, you know, the forensic side from the, you know, the detail side of the case. And so it kind of was born out of necessity, and uh, I'm I'm much like Tony. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, it was it was a six month period when I went through one of my courses where I was every day saying I'm not smart enough to do this. Um, I'm going to fail this test at the end of it, and uh, but it comes up every day, and you know yeah. it it's like I mean if you could see the background of what I'm looking at, there are big computers running as we speak, running, you know, all of these programs and things that I'm, that we're using to dig into, you know, these devices and, and the, the technology has changed and shifted greatly in just a very short amount of time. And so that's, that's sort of been the necessity. So we each have strengths and I'll say that to Tony and I uh, work well together because we each have things that we like to do and don't like to do and things that we're better at than the other. And so we sort of complement uh, when we do cases together, the strengths and weaknesses of the other. I imagine it must be a very time-consuming process to extract all of the relevant material 
from a phone or a computer or what have you. Oh yeah, you can yeah. you can count on that. The the thing that they emphasize during all of your trainings is is everything is on the clock. Everything takes time. Uh, sometimes time you just don't have, and so processes run all night, overnight, sometimes multiple days in a row. Yeah, time is is definitely not on our side. Well, and there's two perspectives to that. There's the time it takes to process the 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 material, right. and then there's the time it takes to just comb through that processing. And so, but equal, both are equally time consuming. Uh, as far as processing, sometimes we'll just set it overnight. I I do that. That's what this is set to do. That's why it's running in the background, because when I leave for the day, I set processes in motion that will just go and and be done when I come in. But it takes a it takes a significant amount of time just to look through it all. When you think about a a cell phone by itself, one cell phone, the number of files of just everyday data that are on those, they are comprehensive. Yeah, I could give you a, a very quick example. I did one phone dump, um, and, and this has been several years, but uh, I think it was a 64 gig iPhone or something like that. Not huge, but big enough to have a lot of content. And I had a, a prosecutor who was adamant they did not want an electronic copy of this exam to go through. They wanted a paper copy. And I tried to explain, like, you know, there's a version, you can do a PDF, you know, really you can. And so they were kind of asking about this PDF. Well, I just rather have a PDF and filter through it. And I'm like, you have no idea what you're asking for. And so I, I said, if this is what you want, I will go to our legal office and I will tell them this is what you want. And so literally it would have been a, a, a dolly, a full dolly of paper from bottom to top for half of the exam. It was literally like, I don't know, 120,000 pages of paper or something like that. It was crazy amount. And uh, finally, they, the light bulb went on like, oh, uh, okay, we'll, we'll take the electronic version. Like, and okay. just as a, as a perspective to that, like now, when you're looking at, you know, that, that's a very good real world exp, uh, explanation of what it would look like if you were to print it out. But now we're getting to the point where, like I have cases that have, you know, three, four terabytes up to, tw I've got one that's 26 terabytes of data. And so it's not even that we couldn't print it out. It's now that like some places don't have the means to store the amount of digital data yeah. even because everything sort of just exploded on us as far as the the size of the, the data that's coming in on cases, especially if there's more than one device. Yep. We, uh, we talked a bit about sort of, uh, you know, a kind of comparison to like a drug case. And you've also, you know, talked about some of the unique challenges about investigating these cases. And I'm just curious, like within the realm of the cases that you guys investigate, is are there any unique challenges to those kinds of cases in terms of prosecuting them versus other types of crimes? Not necessarily, no. I mean, there are, are you know, things that, you don't want to call them markers, but, you know, there's obviously statutory requirements we have to have for the specific charge. So, you know, you're inferring that someone has met those burdens just by simply being arrested. You know, we don't go do things willy-nilly. We, we are very, very, very strict uh, on rules and the rules that we are allowed to operate in. Uh, so I don't think that there's many issues with that. What I I, and I don't know if this is the right time to maybe mention, but I would say that 
what we do see, because we go teach all over the country, all over the world in different places, and we do see very consistently where there's a spike the ball moment, like there's a case that comes in and an arrest is made and there's the high fives and the spike in the ball and yeah, we got this bad guy and then the investigation comes to a close. And so what we're seeing, you know, fairly regular until we do some education and training is that that's not where it ends. That's technically where your case begins. And so from a prosecution standpoint, if you're not doing the proper follow-up with the information that is extracted from all the data that you, you know, seize, you're missing victims, you're missing people, and you're missing potential more, but uh, you know, more potential charges. I'll throw out another option because I think that having now, I will put out there, there no one's going to confuse this this issue. But Tony and I are not attorneys. Uh, <laughs> we are right. not smart enough to be attorneys. Um, but I have heard from, you know, the prosecutors that we work with and, and there are some aspects and issues I think that they have to deal with in these crime types that, that are different and more difficult than other crime types that they may prosecute. Um, so from our angle, yes, there are some easier things and they're not, maybe not, um, much different in the way we approach some of the investigative techniques, but certainly prosecutorially there, the, I mean, you have to think. This is going to be a case that is going to involve several large sets of data in a digital format. So that's already a technical hurdle that, you know, I would say probably most courts around the country are going to face because, you know, they're not swimming in money to fund the, the newest and latest technological gadget. Um, but also like the material itself. Think about this. It's not just hearing about the case of a child being abused it is i mean this this is what makes child sexual abuse material otherwise we call it child for you for for people that may be listening that aren't familiar with that term we call child sexual abuse material or csam um what has historically been called child pornography um the the terminology has changed significantly so the child sexual abuse material is so heinous because it is a crime scene you are seeing a a digital photograph or video of the abuse of this child that's captured forever um, to be viewed, for, you know, by people for sexual gratification horribly. Um, and so you think about just that content and and having to navigate the waters of how are we going to show a judge or jury this stuff without, you know, completely traumatizing them. How are we going to present this in a way that's non-prejudicial? And and so those are the aspects that we hear from our prosecutors that we work with and some of the hurdles that they have to overcome, which is why we believe the prosecutors that we work with are some of the best in the in the world. Yeah, they're saints. And, and the only thing I would piggyback uh, with all that, which are great points, is we want to get this right. We want it to be right statutorily. We want this to be right how it's prosecuted. Because believe me when I tell you, we work harder to disprove um, the case before we ever are looking to prove the case. We, I never, we, I can speak for Brandon on this as well, we don't want to hang our hat on the fact that someone gets convicted and sent to prison that did not do this type of an offense. This is really serious stuff. This stuff fractures families completely. and it has lifelong consequences. So trust me when I tell you, we are doing it right 
for the right reasons because neither one of us want that on our conscience whatsoever. Yeah. Oh, there's too much at stake. Like we've heard yeah. from victims of this crime that, you know, they, they speak about the basically the life sentence that they get. You know, the, the hands-on abuse was one thing, but then, and they may heal from that, but then they have to go on knowing with shame and guilt and, and fear that someone may recognize them from the videos or images that were created as well. And so it's sort of like a re-traumatization over and over and over again. And so with that at stake, we just believe that we must do our best to make sure it's done well, done right. And, you know, with the protective the protections that the constitution offers that we're we believe in you know we believe that you are innocent until proven guilty and so we want to make sure we're doing everything as as cautiously and above board as possible so the long-winded answer of that question very, very interesting answer and of course before these predators even step foot in a courtroom they step into an interview room either with you or with other detectives can you tell us what that process is like and how you handle that? <laughs> Tony's going to look. Oh, this is yeah, his, I'll tell you, <clears throat> that's the best part of the job to me. That's it's what it's what feeds my passion to know that I can take a guy or a gal, believe it or not, there are female offenders, um, to get into a room with a person who has a secret that they've held very likely for the majority of their adult life um, and and to be able to get that person to admit to the wrongdoings that got us into that room um, I just love it I love it it's a challenge it's difficult um, not everybody can do it um, and so and it's very rewarding for me you know we see terrible terrible things that we will never unsee. Our brains are scarred for life. Uh, but the the flip side of that is that when we're putting people away, and trust me, we've put a lot of people away, but those are people that need to be put away because absent of that, they're going to, with access and availability, get their hands on a kid. And so getting getting them to make those admissions and to see sometimes how it really just it's like a weight off their shoulders. Sometimes it's the complete weight off their shoulders. Um, I don't know. It's the best aspect of the job for me. It's the psychology of it. That's, I mean, that's what's fascinating too. I think Tony and I share um, the love of the interview. We we approach things very similarly in some ways and then very different in others. Um, and for me, it's just, you know, the opportunity to sit down with, someone who's being accused of something and to figure out the why behind it. Um, because, uh, and this is something that we bring up when we talk with, with offenders is, you know, the, the human aspect is what we're there to learn. Uh, because we're going to know all of the digital aspect. We're going to know the, what, the, when, and the where, um, 
but sort of the motivations and and believe me there are motivations you know behind everything that happens in in any crime type but especially in this one there are there are, it's not just a, a one-dimensional monolith it is a very multifaceted approach um, to their motivations for why they do these things. Um, and so whether that's, you know, some people we've, we've just talked with an expert on one of our episodes and, and he brought up some people are only going to look at child sexual abuse material. They'll never have a hands-on offense. Some people are only going to commit hands-on offenses and not look at images because that's not their thing. And then there's of course the crossover and in between where one is fueling the other. And so, to learn the psychology of each offender, it, that's the only chance we get to do it. We sit down and, you know, that's typically when we interview the offender is the most honest they're going to be in the process. You know, where st I think even research has said, you know, that their, on their honesty is going to be at the pinnacle when law enforcement approaches for the first time. Um, and so we believe that's our opportunity um, to sort of understand the psychology of why what has happened has happened um and so it's not it's not just a gotcha we want to get you to confess to something sometimes it's it's an empathetic like we're going to be the person you can talk to about this that you know while we don't understand it you know the, as far as like how we don't we can't sympathize in that we would never do what you've done we are going to be understanding in the way that you can tell us how it's gotten to this point and we're going to be able to you know sort of understand what's what's been the motivation behind it i don't know if that that answers that question tony or if, it if you does. Had anything. what kind of what kind of motivations do they give you no it, it runs the gamut you know some will uh there's various things that come out of people's um thought process as they are in that situation. One, it's very apparent very early that their mind is set on my life is ruined, you know, and their every dynamic is around that um, because they can't see beyond, they can't see that there's a chance that, hey, they they may be actively back in society. The, the process they don't understand. And so there's, I mean, there's lots of things. Like, I, I don't know that I can think of one not one that's worth repeating um, because I'll some give, of them I'll are depraved. Some. I think some of them, like we have heard things like boredom. We've heard things, you know, like the motivation is that it's, you know, not all sexual, you know, that it's the, the I'd say that there are certainly times where offenders say like, I'm not only attracted to this age, I'm attracted to all ages, but this age is just what I'm most attracted to. Some are saying, you know, some, I don't even think some people have gotten to the point where they're honest with themselves about they're looking at this material and we start to see, and, and Tony, correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, but like we can see from what they're looking at a very definitive age range of interest that they're, that they're showing. And so, you know, when we ask them, what, what interests do you have? Sometimes they, you know, they want to say, oh, you know, 30. And, you know, it's it's very quick for us to say, well, let me just tell you that what I'm seeing, yeah. that is not the age that I'm seeing your, you know, your interest is. And so, I mean, there are smarter, smarter people than us as far as the psychology of it. Um, but the motivations, I think, if you get the truth out of them, if you get a true, honest, like they've, simp they've sat down and given it some thought, um, 
I think it's very complex motivations that aren't just sexual, but I think there are some, some obviously some things that go along with it as well. Yeah. I think on another note, it's uh, dependent on how loaded we are or, and by loaded, I mean of information as we go into an interview um, really can hinge how that interview may go because a lot, even though we do get a, uh, what I guess people would consider a high confession rate or someone who does make admissions to these sorts of crimes. Um, I would say that to get the real glimpse behind the mask kind of thing um, is kind of rare. We don't really get that really in-depth um, account from a bad guy or gal on every occasion because uh, sometimes we just don't have all the information available to us at the time of that interview. And so as we go into those interviews, not that they're being dishonest, they're just giving us what we're asking for and maybe we're not aware of certain things, but that's where from a digital perspective, you know, we use that to our advantage, obviously, if we have that capability because they can't lie about what's on the, on the devices. You know, that's the real true test of what they're really doing and really into whether they cross over enough to tell us, the why that's kind of the psychology behind it i think and their honesty only goes as far as you know they are they're talking to two they're talking to detectives that are investigating a crime so their honesty is generally only going to be as far as we know (laughs) you know they're only going to give us enough to sort of stop us from asking questions but not give us you know no one's coming forward generally and and of their own accord saying here is everything that i've ever done you know we uh, sort of had yeah. to pull it out of them uh strategically i've only honestly had it happen maybe three times like literally just you know had a person just tell me everything like their entire life worth of stuff and you know, so that it, it's uh, it's more rare than you think. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, it's just it's we're not doing anything or saying anything that is um, groundbreaking. You know, we've just come up with some new technique of in- interviewing. Yeah. It is quite literally the same thing every police detective across the world has done with every person they've interviewed, where we just sit down and talk, and we're just trying to, you know, glean the the human aspect behind you know what what has driven a person to do what they've done okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available h-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating my whole family can head deep into the wild conquer the weekend in the all-new hyundai santa fe Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. What makes a life a good one? 
Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm curious, you know, one thing we've seen in some cases we've, you know, looked at or reported on is, you know, people saying, oh, that's on my phone. I must have gotten hacked or uh, my friend had my phone and I was just passed out or, or whatnot. And I'm curious, is is there a subset of offender that tries to make that claim at first, maybe before crumbling? And then, you know, in, in terms of that, just from your experience, are you aware of that ever actually happening, someone getting hacked and somebody planting that on their device for some reason? A double-sided question. For, uh, yes, they try a lot. You know, there's an actual name for that defense called the Saudi defense. Some other dude did it, right? And that's a very, very common uh, but usually very easily to disprove. Um, I actually have had a case where someone was absolutely hacked. And uh, while we didn't know that 100% of the time, at the time that we were dealing with it, it did come out in the forensic side. Um, you know, and he clicked on a malicious link and that led to some other things. And, you know, but how do you unring the bell? You know, when you when someone's credibility and somebody's character is questioned, um, you know, from their perspective, it's very hard to unring that bell and get your life back, uh, even though it would be completely justified to get it back. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have much to add other than maybe, you know, we're always going to look at we're going to follow the, the evidence because that's what we're looking for is the truth. And so, you know, if the evidence is there that something like that has happened, then absolutely that's going to be the the way that we look at the case. I, I'm getting, we've talked a lot about predators and what they're like. Is there a typical profile for the type of uh, child who is most likely to become a, a victim for this sort of crime? Well, vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Vulnerable is, is absolutely the best word to describe um you know, obviously there are, a predator would get his hands, if they had access and opportunity and availability, they would put their hands on any kid they could get a hold of, whether that's the the uh, high school cheerleader, you know, the head cheerleader, or whether it's the, uh, the gothic girl who has no friends. Um, obviously, they have better success with the group of kids that maybe doesn't have very high self-esteem, or maybe they are a little bit more independent or loners. Uh, they don't have a big circle of friends. Uh, there's a there's a whole correlation, you know, of where they, how they're brought up, you know, and, and we hate to pigeonhole into one category of like, oh, it's just you know single parent families. That that's not true at all. Um, you know, we see lots of victims from all sorts of, you know, socioeconomic statuses, status levels, um, but they're going to go wherever they can succeed. And unfortunately for young people and for parents, that's anywhere, any app that's out that's available now is where they're going to be. And I hate to look at it this way, but I think, you know, if I'm, if I'm looking at the way that we've seen predators approach 
kids, it's it's almost like a numbers game. Even even for us, you know, being kids on the internet, it's a numbers game. If if they're not getting what they want right off, then they're going to be three or four more kids behind that one that they'll move on to. And so it's, you know, not uncommon for us to see an offender with 10, 15 kids that they're talking to at one time because it's all about which one is vulnerable and, and willing to give what I'm wanting them to do. Um, so it's, it's, it is vulnerability, though. I think it's that kid that does not have the, the, the structure at home that, that has made them feel like they are worth enough, that they are, you know, all of the things that we would see from any vulnerable, you know, child that is, is subject to being preyed on by any uh, adult for anything. And it's a manipulation process as it is, you know, they're going to manipulate what they can with any child they encounter to work in their advantage. And so if they get a little foot in the door, then they're going to try to get both feet in the door. If they get any kind of resistance or fear that they're going to get caught or reported, then they just move on to the next one. Because unfortunately there's plenty more in the stack, you know? I think just like child sexual abuse in a hands-on offense, you know, they're going to manipulate or what we use the term groom the child. And then they're going to groom the guardians and caretakers of the child around that child. And that's the manipulation and, and the way that they are, are sort of manipulating the, both the kid and the, and the environment around the kid are the same online. Um, what I think happens is it just happens much faster online because of the anonymity and the sort of protection that the internet may give. Um, so we see the same kind of grooming behavior online that we see in hands-on cases, just at a much quicker speed. I'm curious, you know, in terms of these kinds of offenders, and, and you've made some really good points sort of linking the online to the in, in real life uh, victimization that maybe they're not so different, but are you seeing offenders that are typically violent and that I'm not I'm not counting the inherent violence of of doing sexual crimes to children obviously that's inherently violent but I, I'm just beyond that is that a common trait among offenders or is that somewhat rare I, I don't know that I would use the word common it certainly does happen I mean I I have worked cases um, where a guy flew from another state to my state in order to uh, participate in what he thought was a consensual act with a child. And obviously that was stopped before it happened. But, you know, as a search warrant was done of his place, he he brought with him what we would consider, you know, a, a rape kit, uh, a kidnapping kit, tape, you know, zip ties, all kinds of stuff, hoods, a hood to wear, and, you know, all, all just all kinds of paraphernalia that goes with it. So you don't know the real intent is that just a sexual perversion or does that mean you know what i'm not going to risk getting caught as we know kids are abducted every day lots of times uh, i don't know what the numbers are but it's staggering and so we know some of those kids never come home so we treat it as though they're all the same right that potential is always there yeah but i don't know that we don't see it's uh, it's not every day that we're seeing violence go along with it as far as, you know, an attack of some sort. Um, it does happen. Uh, I know that, you know, that there have been things just in we've had recent. I say recent, I guess it feels like it's recent, but it's been a few years ago or a couple of years ago that that a 
a child was kidnapped from her mother in Fort Worth in broad daylight. And so there was, you know, a child abuse component to that kidnapping. And, you know, thank God they rescued that kid um, through really amazing police work um, and and community involvement. But but that's not the that's not the norm. Um, I have seen those things happen. Um, with violence in the attack, but for the most part, when we're seeing every day, you know, the especially online, you're, you know, you're not seeing that because sometimes the offenders prefer to just stay anonymous online because they're afraid they'll get caught if they go to a hands-on offense. I'm curious. The case uh, we've been looking at is one where they found one predator and that led them to a network of other predators. Is it common for these people to have networks where they trade materials or what have you? I think so. I, yeah. I don't want Good. to say yes in every sense, in every case, but I don't think it's as un. I, I, how to put this? I don't want to. I don't want everyone to believe that every child sexual abuse material trader is part of a larger, you know, ring of offenders. But in some I guess in some regards that is true because you are trading, downloading, sharing this material. You're doing it with someone because you're getting material from from other people. So in that sense, there is a ring or, or a, a network. Um, I think there are certainly times when there are organized networks of people who are. Uh, I mean, and there are are well publicized cases of of those networks where you know people that have been caught. Be, are are meeting in real life with people that they've also spoken to online, um, but what I can tell you is what we're seeing um, on on in the ways that we can see people that are communicating about and talking about these things. There are certainly some organized aspects to those to those offenses where they are they are you know they find like-minded people in these groups and so that cultivates their their fantasies and their um, sexual deviances together and then you know certainly there are opportunities for them to try to enact those things in person uh, given the opportunity so I don't want to make it seem like every CSAM offender is part of a big network but in some aspects yes I mean you know in a vague sense there are there are always networks around how they're getting this material and, and how they're trading this material because someone is producing it. Um, and so without that producer, you wouldn't have it and someone is consuming it. And without that consumer, there would be no need for the production. So I think there is a sense in that way, but I think there are organized networks as well. Yeah. I, I just would add the, uh, I'd make a distinct line between a network and a ring a ring of some, you know, I, I take the person that's in a ring of like-minded people fulfilling, you know, fantasies, if that's what it starts out as, that are going, turning into reality versus the network. Because the networking, you know, they're all drawn together The just by virtue of how they're getting the material. Like Brandon said, they're all networked into different platforms and, and methodology because they all have the same sort of propensity some are never going to go hands-on as brandon mentioned before but um it doesn't mean they won't share the content that they're seeking um so from the networking side i'd say a good portion probably are but uh from a ring like you know i think it falls we hear a lot in our in our arena 
related to human trafficking and there's a lot of people who believe that the kidnapper van is scooping kids off the street corner and while that certainly is in the realm of possibility um, it's not something we see very frequently because we know that a lot of those kids are exploited long before they're pushed into that situation of trafficking and it's it's a double-edged sword but that's more of what I would call a ring versus the networking, if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And you talk about how maybe the idea of people getting pushed into a van isn't something you really need to be concerned about. So that raises the question, what should parents be concerned about? What should they be on the lookout for? Let me, yeah, let me go ahead. Let me follow up to what he said about, you know, I don't, we don't want to, to ever discount that you should be aware and that of course kids are kidnapped and there are trafficking things like that certainly that that could be a possibility but i think overall what we're saying is that you know and and there are people who work only trafficking so i don't want to posit that we are some experts in trafficking because we're not certainly but but what we tend to see is victims that are trafficked tend to be child abuse victims, child sexual abuse victims, child exploitation victims long before the trafficking occurs because a lot of times the trafficking is coming out of that exploitation. Um, so to follow up on that, what should they be concerned with is um, I'd say my answer would be twofold. You should be concerned with all of the things that you've been concerned with in the past, but just throw into the mix that that all of those things that you were seeing happening in real life in re, in person those are now happening much more frequently online first so i would say the the biggest takeaway for a parent is know what your child is doing on that device that you've given them because think about you know what tony said that white van that kidnaps kids we've we've long said in when we teach people that you know the age of the white van at the end of the block that that's long gone. That that offender in the white van is coming right into your child's bedroom through that cell phone that you've given them, unfettered access to the internet, unrestricted access to applications and people on the other end of those. And so that would be my first answer. And then, and then just as a secondary follow-up to that would be, you should be pouring into your child's life with an intentionality in, in the way that you parent that that hardens the target to make them impervious to that sort of risk you know that that's the you know the caution is not what do we have to be afraid of is it's more proactive of what can i do to prevent this and and the easy answer is just be involved and be a parent and i think if you've got those the two things then you know, it's going to be easy so yeah he, he took the words out of my mouth exactly I, I echo everything that he said the only thing i would add is monitor if you aren't a technically savvy person educate yourself or get something that put on the device that will help you monitor some of the activities that go on there we're big proponents of that i use it with my own family um i just think it's very important aside from the intentionality like brandon mentioned you know we when we do presentations with parent groups or churches or you know whoever will listen to us talk the paint off a wall um you know, we will often say a couple things like, hey, you're not going to tell your 11 year old, here's the keys to the car, go to the store and get me some milk and butter and bring it back. You know, why are you going to be so concerned 
you know, you're going to give them, like Brandon said, these unfettered access to a, a full-blown computer into the privacy of their own room and not be intentional about things or the talk. Oh, my kid's 12 years old. I got to have the talk. Well, if you're thinking about that, the talk, you're in the wrong mindset. You need to have many talks all along the way. And from a young age, we're seeing victims as young as nine and 10, you know, who are, are subject to online situations that are getting them exploited because technology is where it is. And there are kids in elementary school that have iPhone 13s and everything else. So it's a, it's a, a progression of just being involved and being aware and validating what you're hearing from your kid. Not that you're not going to trust your kid because we all want to trust our kids, but we want to validate what they're telling us. Either that's through monitoring or that's through our own checking. And and be careful what you're posting and what your kid's posting. I mean, I I have had this talk, and I know Tony and I both have, have shared with each other that we have had this talk with people in our own lives about you are not thinking about what you're putting out there um, in, in two ways. You're not thinking about it. Um, oftentimes, people are putting out very, a lot of information without very innocently, not meaning to put out information. But more so, what you're putting out there, you're not thinking of as an offender would. Um, so when you post your kids, you know, at the park or you're posting... Um, what I what we keep seeing on offenders devices, you know, when we get a, an offenders device in the lab and start looking at it and start just seeing pictures and videos that have been taken off of kids social media account of them doing things, you know, in their bedrooms um, or doing, you know, gymnastics things or going out to the pool and filming and things like that. Well, of course, a parent's not thinking of that in any in any way generally other than innocently um but to steal one of our colleagues and and he just put it better than than i could i'll i'll steal dr hill's analogy you're not going to the grocery store and posting a picture of your kid in their bathing suit saying here take one you know and have it for your own use but that's what we're doing online parents are posting pictures of their kids in all of these circumstances that they're not thinking of as anything other than innocently as, as they should. But, but an offender's not looking at that. That's the, the mindset the, the offender's looking at is very different. And so they're collecting those things maybe as, as personal use, you know, imagery. And, and so that's something I would caution parents. Um, I, I don't think we've said that enough, you know, just to make sure that you're thinking about, how is someone that might have horrible things on their mind, you know, regarding kids, how are they going to look at this picture? Not how are you as a parent going to look at it? Yeah. And, and we recognize we come from a, the paradigm of we're messed up. <laughs> We've seen this stuff so much for so many years and run across this so much. <laughs> it's second nature to us, but to get parents to shift that paradigm, to think from that perspective is very eye opening when we when you see it click with a parent when we do a presentation. And we hate to have to. Yeah. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. 
I love my Skims Wireless Form Bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. This is an incredible list of things that parents uh, can do differently to help protect their kids. I wonder, is there anything the big tech companies could or should do to help protect kids online? Yeah, very good question. Um, I would say the rock solid answer is, heck yeah, there's a lot of things they can do. Um, You know, in today's environment and, you know, people talking about... uh, government oversight and all the sort of things that go around that and the debates that happen. And this isn't some political um, message that I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to say is that there are certainly things, there are things that providers, online providers are doing that are working and are helpful, but there are lots of things they could do to make it easier. If they wanted to get rid of this type of material on their servers, they absolutely could do that if that's what they wish to do. Um, and and I, I'm not going to just put a blanket over and say that's not what their goal is. I don't think anybody would come forward from any platform anywhere to say we're not about protecting kids because I think inherently everybody is about protecting kids. But, you know, we see, we see the things that come across and we see the things that sometimes are not always taken down rapidly. Um, I mean, there's always room for improvement on everybody's level, from an internet service provider, from law enforcement, from parents. I think the takeaway is, yes, we can all do better. And we've recently had the opportunity to speak with, you know, liaisons from some of the bigger companies at the crimes conference. And so I think our big, our big, um, point that we believed that we wanted to make then was just opening up a partnership and a line of communication between law enforcement and those companies and between parents and those companies trying to make sure that you know these companies have a lot to think about they they are they are trying to walk that balance between user privacy and user protection um, and so there's the encryption um, aspects we tend to fall on the side of you know like nickmic that that end-to-end encryption although it has its uses um sometimes is just a way to not have to you know worry about some of the the stuff that may be out there and so i think my my biggest push for the companies to to do would be just to be open with us in how we can work better on their platforms to protect kids and um and basically just monitor as much as they can to to try and take it down as quickly because as as possible so absolutely i wanted to turn back to the case that we've been covering extensively just because it does get into a lot of these issues around csam and online predators i'm just wondering if this is something that sounds like familiar in terms of investigations you've done or if it sounds at all unusual in terms of um offender behavior and and this is basically you have an offender who's uh got a 
you know, is a man, but is using a female name on the messaging platform Kick and appears to be messaging back and forth with other people who claim to, you know, have female names in their uh, profiles, but appear to be other pedophiles or, you know, offenders. And they're describing CSAM essentially. And is that some sort of like thing that is, is out there or some sort of uh, thing that you've kind of encountered in your investigations or is that just totally off pace? Wait, that they're describing it or that they're sharing it with each other? Sharing it and and in some cases sort of describing what they have, basically. Yeah, I'd say I think that's that networking that we were kind of talking about where where like-minded individuals are going to places where other individuals have that available. Um, and they're looking, it's almost like they're always looking for new material. And so it it's sort of that opportunity and, you know, we're... We're seeing that that that's very common. Um, I don't know that pretending to be female when you're male or male when you're female necessarily plays into I'm It's not something we have never seen. It's just I don't know that that I think I'd have to think about the psychology of what, what what's going on and what's the purpose. Um, I've seen more often that an offender may pretend to be the other sex while they're messaging kids. Um, to obtain nude imagery and so it i have seen very commonly a male pretending to be a female child or or juvenile who's then seeking out nude imagery of other males and then using that to extort them or blackmail them that's a very common scheme yeah i would agree with that and um you know there's not much more to say like brandon's already said yeah we we see that commonality within lots of different platforms, not just the specific one you mentioned, but um, I mean, that's by virtue of how they do it. This, like he said, the self-generated material is what we're having the biggest problems with now. Just simply on the education side of that, where kids, you know, their belief, their mindset is, well, you know, if I know the person, it's okay as long as they agree not to share it. And so we really have to be vigilant in how we change their mindset that no, that's not the right way to think. You don't need to do that. But uh, that the common theme is there. Like I said, that's the whole networking side. They're, they're all looking for the same material or new material. And let me point out what's so dangerous, though, about what you're talking about with your case on, on a platform like that where they're describing what they're doing or what they have is, you know, someone who may be seeking new material, maybe driving, you know, and not that they that they're not owning owning their own actions but that they may be driving someone with access to a child to create new material um and thereby cre you know creating new material means offending against a child and um so to me that's some of the worst of the worst um because they are fueling the the creation of new material and the hands-on abuse of a child just by seeking out new new stuff in that way um, so very often we've seen that that be the case where the production of new material is occurring because others are are sort of driving that that need um in that way yeah it's, it's horrifying and then just one more case specific question this is uh this is basically a situation where you have an offender there's a raid on his house his devices are confiscated um and there is uh, CSAM on said devices and, you know, internet searches, you know, materials, images, videos. Um, 
but he's not actually charged until three years later, actually over three years later. And you know, that's been something a lot of people have questioned or like, was there some sort of delay or mistake? And, and we don't, we don't have the answers, but I guess it, it, with your experience, we'd, we'd love to get your insight on like why that could occur. Is it just something that takes a long time to investigate and prove and, and, or that, does that sound like a long time for that gap to kind of be? There's a couple of factors that could come into play with it. The first one I could think of with a delay and if I'm understanding, correct me if I misunderstood, but uh, the, the warrant happened, the seizure of the devices took place, but no arrest took place for three years is what you're saying happened. Um, yep. That seems, uh, well, that seems a little out of the ordinary to me. Um, I, sometimes if I'm in the context I'm thinking of, you know, if you go into a house to execute a warrant and there's five adult males living in the home and it's one computer that's open you know the burden is a little harder not impossible but it's a little harder to put who's behind the actual keyboard that could be some factor um maybe you know i i don't know some of the other factors that could cause a three-year delay that seems i know we're hesitant i think we're hesitant to say there are so many factors that could come into play you know the the ability to get into devices you know the maybe the possibility of finding victims um yeah. I'll, I'll say that tends to spark longer periods of investigation when you're finding victims you know identification of victims is our our number one go goal in rescuing kids from those circumstances so yeah. you know that's that's the thing that you know, when you're looking through and depending on the number of devices, um, how they had to be examined, what the access to those devices. Um, and when you get into five or six devices with hundreds of thousands of images or videos, trying to identify each child that might be a, in harm's way could certainly take time. But I think I would say uh, we would be cautious to speak to any length of time, you know, whether it's too short or too long, I, I, you know, I don't know that we could speak to that with any sort of. Yeah, and we definitely, we certainly do not know all the factors involved here. So we yeah. we were curious about your guys' gut check on that, but it sounds like there could be a lot. You know, and I know in this yeah. case, there certainly was, uh, there were numerous devices, I believe, involved. Mm -hmm. So that is a factor yeah. here. Well, and Tony's had cases with, you know, 8,000 victims. And so the time and effort it takes to try to identify and and really you know track down and i mean just honestly even tracking down the law enforcement officer in the area where the victim is to try and get contact with i mean yeah. that's something that does take a significant portion of time as well and so you know I, there might be that at play as well do the victims um once they're discovered do they have to typically testify at trial is that a common thing or are they often unfortunately not discovered and the trials sort of go on without uh, I would say it, it's a depends kind of thing um, very th in my experience only is what I'm going to speak on in my experience only the majority of the offenders that I have experience with um, are not going to a jury trial you know they they realize and often a lot of the cases, the chips are very much against them and their best option is to, you know, try to work that process out with the prosecutor through some sort of agreement. And so there's there's 
not very many instances where we've actually had to go to trial where a victim would have to actually come forward. I've, I would say I had more victims come in and testify when I was a like a hands-on detective um, in the sense of hands-on cases, um, sex offenses with kids. Um, I had lots more kids uh, get on the stand and testify in those instances than I ever have with online related crimes. Yeah, I think that it, it would just depend on the type of offense it is, how it's being prosecuted, what's being alleged. I think, you know, those are the sort of factors that we would have to look at. I don't see, I think, yeah, the the ones in which the kid was a hands-on victim, typically they are the fact witness that's going to talk about what's, I mean, I won't pretend to be an attorney, so I'll say I, I don't know um, all of the, the ways that, they would need to come in. One thing that's very clear from uh, listening to uh, everything you've said is that this is a very stressful job. This is very difficult work you do, the things that you have to see. I think Tony joked that your minds were messed up because of this. <laughs> so to wrap up, I'm just curious, how do you guys deal with the trauma and the stress of this difficult but very necessary work? Um, for me, I I will say twofold, not threefold. One, I'm very grounded in my faith. I'm very grounded with my family. I do my very best to not bring the job home, um, even though that's a very difficult task. On the secondary side of it, I occupy my personal time completely away from the law enforcement arena. I have hobbies. We do our own podcast which takes up a bunch of our time, even though it's semi-work related, uh, a lot of work related, but it's a different context. And so, you know, um, plus I'm long in the saddle or I'm, I'm, I could retire if I wanted to. Uh, and so I just choose to occupy my mind with uh, things that I enjoy doing from a hobby side and where I'm not even really thinking about it. Uh I mean, we're both cops, so we were police officers and, and detectives before we did this specific type of investigation. And so you see some terrible stuff as a police officer that that you shouldn't, that no one should have to see. Um, and so I think early on, I learned how to sort of separate the two, compartmentalize, you know, the, the, the terrible stuff you're seeing is horrible, of course, but so, I mean someone needs to work to try to help these children and save these kids from this horrible situation and make sure that, you know, people are held accountable for doing horrible things to kids. And so for me, it's always been easy to say, sort of separate, like Tony said, I think anyone that does this for any length of time, either decides that they can separate the two or they don't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. And so if you figure out that you are, uh, I'd say messed up enough to be able to separate the two from from each other then then you do it and and you understand you know I'll I'll give credit to one of our dear friends Irish you know she said people always ask how you can do this how can you do this work and and she said when you look at uh, a child who has been rescued out of a circumstance where they've been harmed and you see them um, restored and healed through therapy and and sort of the process that we that we see kids go through to be brought back to some sort of semblance of well-being 
Um, that that's the answer to the the question, which is should be asked, which is why you do this. And so that's really my takeaway. We are very like Tony and I in that we are grounded in our faith. We're grounded in our families. Um, and, and when I go home, this turns off and I don't think about that. And, you know, and I love on my kids and my wife and my dogs. And, you know, that's uh, the, the dogs really help because, you know, dealing with those little, <laughs> those little things are, are a life in and of themselves. So I think that we're both the same where we just sort of switch it off when we leave work. Um, we, I have a process when I leave work, I'm listening to something completely off topic and driving home and sort of, I take off the, the coat of being detective and I come home and I'm, I'm husband, dad, and you know, dog wrangler. Yeah, the, the only thing I would add would be, uh, <clears throat> I know both of our agencies um, are are leading at the tip of the spear with uh, officers' mental health. And I think it definitely bears mentioning um, how improved that process is and how much of an advocate I know I am and I know Brandon is, um, that if we have someone or ourselves where we feel like we need to go and have a conversation with someone on a professional level. I have no problem whatsoever doing that. I know Brandon feels the same way, but um, you know, this is a tough profession in itself, no matter what. This makes it equally hard because of what we do. But like Brandon said, you know, we've we've all seen and we have officers all over the country who are seeing horrific things. And so they just all need to know that their mental health is super important, you know, so reach out, talk to somebody. Hey, one thing, can I give ours a plug? If uh, any of your listeners have uh, anything they need as far as resources, please go to our website, uh, www.catfishcops.com and go to forward slash resources or click on the resource tab when you get there. Because on our resource page, like Brandon mentioned, we are very, very close friends with Sonia Ryan. She's just near and dear to our hearts. She's part of both of our families. Now, um, we have worked into a partnership with uh, the Carly Ryan Foundation, and so they've graciously given us the ability to list a lot of resources on that uh, resource page of ours that will directly link you over to the Carly Ryan site, but they're very, very helpful in regards to third-party applications or, you know, parental monitoring. There's a contract on there that you can get, you know, a parent can work with their kid. Uh, just lots and lots and lots of resources and if anybody's out there that needs something you know specific you're very likely going to find it on our site we would like to thank tony godwin and brandon poor for talking with us this week and if you are interested in the subject we very much suggest you check out their podcast catfish cops it is available on all med it is available on all major podcast platforms If you've been affected by this crime, we also recommend you take Tony's advice and take a look at the resources and links they provide at the Catfish Cops website. To our surprise, we've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So, if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. 
You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.